Morning, everyone. Is that loud enough? It feels quite... Oh, there we go. That's better. Makes me feel like I've got a big voice. <laughs> oh, welcome, welcome along this morning. I see there's a few, um, few new faces, so if you're here for the first time or second or third time, welcome. My name's Sam. I'm part of the furniture here. Um, I've been here for about, you know, maybe 12, 13, 14 years, long time, um, and it really is a privilege to be part of this family and, and to share with you this morning. Um, more and more so, I think, it's the, it's the fellowship, it's the connections, it's the, the real genuine relationship between um, one another, I think, which is what has kept me here and I know has kept um, um, a lot of you guys here as well. So we're really fortunate to have, I think, what, what we have, not in a building, but with each other, hey? So, does anyone know what we've been looking at for the last three, four, five months? Any takers? Love, love. Thank you, AV guys, who gave that one away. So, we've been looking at love. We've been looking at the divine nature of Abba, or the divine nature of our Father. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians 13, which, shock horror, isn't just a passage of Scripture for weddings. In fact, we heard last week that 1 Corinthians 13, this big passage of love, isn't actually talking about weddings at all. Unless you're thinking about the marriage between Christ and the church and the divine preparation that God has for us as his body, then you can talk about it in a marriage context. But if not, it's actually set in the context of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So if, you, if that, um, uh, how would you say, um, grabs your attention, come along this evening. We've been looking at the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we've been laying a foundation for what it means to function as part of a body, what it means to have our identity so secure in Christ that we can minister to one another, not because we need to be seen doing good things for God, but because in everyone coming and playing their role, we all become richer as a result. So I really encourage you guys, if you haven't been coming along to the evenings, to, to come out and hear, oh, Terry, onto it, my man. With the, um, yeah, so there's a, little, there's a little flyer up on the screen there. So this week, today, we're going to be looking um, at 1 Corinthians 13 again. Um, and we're on to 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 3. So we pretty much smashed our way through most of the chapter, and now we're coming back to the beginning. And Greg shared about the, um, the first two verses um, over the last couple of weeks, um, and now we're on to verse 3. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians 13. Cool. So recap on last week, we had here this. The title, The Excellence of Love. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And here we go, verse 3. And if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, 
And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me a little bit. Oh wait, no, it profits me nothing. Powerful verses. So we heard last week about, you know, Greg was sharing about, look, we can have all of these gifts of the Spirit. We can be moving in signs and wonders and miracles. But if we don't have this one thing, if we don't have love, if we don't have the divine nature of our Father living within us, at the end of the day, we're left with what? With nothing. And so following on to verse 3, and if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. You know, what fascinates me about these verses is that God, or Paul through, God through Paul is touching on the most holy, Christian, good, religious things. Wouldn't you say? Feeding the poor? That's a big Christian tick right there. Speaking in tongues, moving in signs and wonders, moving in miracles. Would you not say that these are pretty damn holy things? I would, I would say so. They're the most Christian and holy things that you can think of. What he doesn't say is, guys, if you prioritize your career, if you invest more in your family, if you fall in love or with the things of this world, you've got nothing. No, he doesn't. He's not talking about those things. He's not talking about, to, to Paul, in his mind, being a Christian, that's a, that's a done deal. If you're a believer, you're all in, boots and all. You've let your life go. You're not living for yourself anymore. So here he's not addressing unbelievers and saying, guys, you need to give up your earthly life and come into a heavenly one. He's saying, guys, now that you are Christians, now that you've already made that decision to devote your entire life to Christ and to love him, to live for him and minister for him, here's the one thing that, you don't, that I don't want you to forget. Don't get so caught up in your Christianity and your religious activity that you forget the essence and the heartbeat of what the gospel was always supposed to be about which was having the divine nature of Abel, the divine nature of our Father formed within you. Don't get so busy doing good, being good, looking good, that you don't become good on the inside. Jesus says, who is good? No one's good but God alone. And that God is the same God that's to live in you and me. So he's not talking here about giving up your life, giving up your possessions, your career, your earthly things loves, he's talking here about something that's even more important than that. So this morning, we're looking at verse 3. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. If I give all of my possessions to the poor. I've titled this, this message, Social Justice and Divine Righteousness. Does anyone know what social justice is? Any, this is a, come on, this is an audience part, participation, right? What, what is social justice? Helping the poor, helping the needy, equality, absolutely, these are all good things. And as Christians, we should be about these things, absolutely. To give you a bit of context, I work for the Ministry of Social Development, my entire 
career at this stage revolves around social justice, doing good, helping people. My role is to provide advice to the government on ways that we can, as a nation, support young people into sustainable, meaningful work and um, help them provide for themselves. I am all about social justice, and I work in that environment because I think it's important. So this message is not social justice versus divine righteousness. This is just about getting our priorities in order and seeing what is of divine and ultimate importance as opposed to what is of importance but just isn't of eternal substance. So from, from in my mind, I feel like every time we come to a crossroads like this in Christianity, where we see that something is out of line and out of whack. For example, this movement towards social justice, to be that, that Christians should be getting out there, bringing about transformation in the communities that they live in, which is right and good. And then we hear about a message that says, actually, it's not about that. It's about love. It's about becoming like the Father. It's about being transformed. There can be an easy tendency to go from one which is slightly out and then I've heard, as a, um, as a church, we kind of need to come back oh, the other way and nail and hammer home this thing that it's actually not about social justice so we can make up for the years and years of messages that have been preached that are slightly out of line, wouldn't you say? We hear about this, man, signs. Back in the day, it used to be that miracles and signs and wonders died away with the apostles, and then a movement comes back in that says, no, hold the, hold the ship, mate. You know, this is signs and wonders and miracles are biblical. They're in the Bible. They're for today. Come on, let's get on board. Let's seek these wonders. Let's seek these miracles. Let's... And all of a sudden, the pendulum swings from one to the other. And then a movement comes back again and says, guys, hold on. It's not about signs and wonders. And you hear this message, guys, it's more than, it's more than just miracles. It's, do you see what I'm saying? Have you, anyone who's been in the body of Christ long enough will have been through multiple cycles of these things. And so in my mind, having to correct one thing that's wrong with another thing that's slightly wrong is wrong, wouldn't you say? Would it not be better once and for all to say, hey, this is slightly, this focus on social justice is slightly too much. Let's not come all the way back, back way beyond the center line. Why, not, why don't we just come and stand firm and stand strong and see what God's divine ultimate purpose is and not throw out the baby with the bathwater and become mature and become whole? Because in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, when I was a child, I used to think like a child, reason like a child, act like a child. But when I became a man, I put aside childish things. I put aside the things that were good but not divine, and I came back into the God's rightful order, which was number one, love, being formed in the divine, having the divine nature of God formed inside of us, and then number two, ministering out from a brand new identity and a new nature and being an influence in the society and the world that we live in, ministering in signs and wonders and allowing them to follow us because we're not pursuing them, we're pursuing love. And yet out of that love, there's a natural expression that comes as we begin to walk in our identity as sons. Wouldn't you say? 
So this message, like I said, is social justice and divine righteousness. There's a lot of injustice in the world today. Would you agree? Everywhere we look, every time you turn on the TV, every time you open up stuff.co.nz, every time you walk out your door, there's injustice everywhere that you can see. Then the older that I get, I think when I was, a, when I was younger, I used to think, man, when, I, when, when people get older, they become more mature and they, start, and they stop thinking about themselves and start thinking about others. And the world is actually much better when you're an adult. Um, <laughs> the more adult I become, the more I realize, man, this world is broken, man. And the real reason why the world is broken is because people are broken. People are broken. And yet the gospel comes not to save the world, but to save us as his people. So when we talk about social justice, we're talking about trying to influence and produce change in the world around us. When we talk about divine righteousness, we're talking about a change that takes place on the inside that changes us as his people. Now, it can be so easy, like we heard from Kirk this morning, to look around the outside and to allow the things that are going on in life to determine how we are and how we're doing particularly in our identity. And it can be easy to think, man, if I just got a pay rise, I'd have more money, I'd be able to buy more stuff, and man, my life would be so much easier. If I got, got a promotion, if I just got the latest and greatest technology, if I, it would just settle things down and I'd be able to relax and that would take the pressure off and I'd probably become a better person. I've been trying... I've been hoping for that for a long time, but to be honest, all the new technology I get has not really helped me. I remember um, going and getting my first work phone. Who here has a work phone? Only a few people. <laughs> Lucky you. When I got this thing, I was like, yeah, moving up in the world, a work phone. It was an Apple iPhone. It was brand new, and I pulled it out, and I was like, man, this is like, I have made it in life with a work phone. Up until the first week on the job, and all of a sudden I could be contacted out of hours, <laughs> before work, after work, at lunchtime. Every lunchtime I was getting calls on my phone. I was like, man, this thing was supposed to make my life easier, but it's actually added an entire element of, no, it's not stress. It just made life more busy. And this is just the reality of life, is that Things don't get easier on the outside. In fact, they get harder the older that you get, the more kids that you have, the more responsibility that you have in your job, the more invested you become in a church community. Oh, why is that? Because people are people. And the answer to our problems and the answer to the issues of the world aren't things on the outside changing. There's something on the inside changing. The answer is not social justice and the transformation of your life to give you a more comfortable life. It's not even a sign or a wonder or a miracle to fix your physical body, even as good as that is. It's not even having 
more healthy food and a balanced diet and more exercise, those things are all good, and I support and encourage you to invest in all of them. But the ultimate thing, the peace that we're looking for that Joe shared about this morning, is not a peace that your life becomes more comfortable. It's a peace that sits inside of you. You know the word peace? isn't Literally in the Hebrew, it doesn't mean the absence from conflict. It means wholeness. It means wholeness. So peace isn't things out there changing. Peace is something in here that changes. So I talked about my work phone. Um, and I said here, our, our comfort and our well-being is not the goal of the gospel. Like I said, I work for the government. The big thing is the well-being budget, which I'm absolutely all for. It's a great idea. But actually... Well, what is well-being? Because we can bring a measure of well-being through good policy, which I intend to do to the best of my ability. But actually, the gospel isn't about well-being. It's about being well. It's not about getting out there in the community and doing good things, although it is. It's about becoming well on the inside and all of our ministry and all of our activity and all of our life flowing from being well because we've been made well. The old things have passed away. Our old life has been dead and buried and all things are made new. That's you. So point number one, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Point number one, social justice is about fixing a problem. Divine righteousness is about living from a promise. And I'd like to to illustrate this point through looking at the life of Moses. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to um, Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11. I'm just going to slow down for a moment to to read this through. So just when you hear passages of Scripture read, just sit... Listen, you don't necessarily need to follow it along in your Bible because if your translation is different, you'll spend the whole time trying to think about what the words say as opposed to listening to what's going on here. So just just listen to this. All right, now this is, uh, this is Moses. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So for those of you who know the story of Moses, Moses was a Hebrew, and the Egyptians were afraid of the Hebrews, and they were trying to kill every child. I think it was under two years old. And Moses' mother saw that that she had an incredible son, and she popped him in a basket and sent him down the river. And Moses was picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, who took him as her own son, and raised him, it says, in all the learning and the power and the knowledge of Egypt. So he became an incredibly powerful, well-educated, articulate man. But he was a Hebrew living amongst the Egyptians, and the Egyptians were in slavery. And so in verse 12, it says, so he looked, uh, uh, sorry, uh, and now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that and when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you have killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. So we have Moses, who's a Hebrew, living with the Egyptians in the position of in a position of power, while the rest of the Hebrews were in incredible slavery. And Moses, one day, he looks out and he sees his brothers being abused and beaten, and he takes matters into his own hands. As a powerful man, a man of social justice, he he gets out and he kills the people who are persecuting his brothers. Moses says he sees the affliction of his people and he attempts to save them. And in his way, the only way he knows how to do that is to kill the Egyptian slave drivers and bring freedom for the Hebrews that were his own brethren, his own brothers. But just because it there is an issue, just because there is a problem doesn't mean that you should necessarily address that problem. Because God had always promised to bring the Israelites, the Hebrews, out of slavery and into his promised land. And God needed to deal with Moses to show him that, hey, there is a need for social justice but there's something more important going on here than just justice and just freedom from slavery. I've got a greater plan. I've got a better plan for my people than just social justice, than just to remove them from the oppression of the Israelites. My plan is to bring in divine righteousness. My plan is not freedom from slavery on the outside. It's to bring my people into a quality of life where they're set free, not out there, but that they're set free in here. And in your attempt to try and bring them into that freedom, actually, you're kind of getting in the way. Because while you're bringing about freedom, it's not the freedom that I was after. So he wanted social justice, but God's intention for his people was always divine righteousness. And so we see further on in the passage, it says this, After this whole debacle of Moses, in verse 24, it says, So God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. He remembered his covenant. He remembered his promise. So God's promise was to bring them out of slavery and into the promised land. But his covenant was more than that. Like I've said, it was to bring them out of the slavery that they lived in, the slavery of their thinking, the slavery of their attitudes, their, um, how would you say this, um, victim mentality of always being under, of always being a victim to the world around them and the circumstances around them. And his covenant was to bring them out of that and into a land flowing with milk and honey and to a divine life where they wouldn't be ruled and governed by an oppressive nation, but they wouldn't be ruled and governed by the oppression of their own thinking. 
wonder if you've heard this saying before, you can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the people. Have you heard that before? You can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the people. But, but, but God can, and he will, and he does, and he did, and he will do so again. It's just that you can't. And Moses needed to be schooled by God and what divine righteousness was all about. Now, God wanted to use Moses, and Moses was God's instrument for salvation and restoration of the people, but he needed to show Moses that his salvation didn't rest on his natural ability, but on God's faithfulness and his covenant and his ability to perform not on Moses' strength, but on his promise. And so God allowed Moses to run and to flee and to hide for 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years. And God was perfectly comfortable for the Israelites to stay in slavery for 40 years. Is that an uncomfortable view of God, that God would allow that? That God in your life would allow some tension, some issues, some trials, some tribulations, some struggles. Is that in your realm of thinking about what Christianity is? What about in your family life? Are things sometimes difficult? What about in your work life? Now, these things are not necessarily from God, but they're certainly used by God to bring about a greater quality of life and quality of freedom. And when our focus is on social justice and, and getting a more comfortable and better life, our focus has certainly moved off divine righteousness and what God wants to do in and through us, through the challenges and the trials and the situations that we go through. It really is simply a perspective shift. So I put here, so what does this mean for us today? We might not be responsible for leading a nation out of slavery, but we may be responsible for leading our families. We may be responsible for our discipleship groups. We may be responsible for being a leader in the workplace. We are all certainly responsible for being leaders in character and conduct and in integrity everywhere we go. But if in our parenting we're constantly addressing either issues to make the lives of our kids more comfortable, or we're constantly addressing issues of behavior, we're still playing in this realm of social justice, bringing greater comfort or trying to bring change. They're two sides of the same coin. And I remember um, being at high school and we had a teacher and his son wasn't going to the school. And then in about fifth or sixth form, his, his son came to the school. Um, and he was in one of our classes. And as it so happens at Rongatai College, all the kids, there's like a you line up outside the class. And the teacher was the father of the student who had just started school. And you can imagine it at Rongatai, just like probably any school, there's always a bit of banter before you go into class, teasing it's like sometimes it's on the verge of bullying, but it's in jest and it's in good fun. And it just so happened that um, 
at, at, at Rongatai, it's probably about 65 or 70% Māori, Pacific, other ethnicities, and few white people, so the white people like me tended to get picked on a little bit. Um, so this guy was getting picked on by some of these big, you know, teddy bear rugby players. And it just so happened that the moment that this guy, the son of the teacher, was getting picked on, his dad, who was the teacher, came out of the classroom to invite the kids into the class. And he heard the, these comments that were being made to his son. The kids there didn't know that this was his son. And this teacher absolutely lost the plot <laughs> at the kids. He said, and he said something like this, never insult a cub in front of the lion, <laughs> and, he, and he let them have it. Why? Why did, why did this provoke such a reaction? This teacher hears this kind of carry-on every single day outside his classroom. Why was it that he absolutely lost the plot? Because it was his son. And something rose up within him, some kind of social justice that him and his family wanted to create an environment for his child where his child was protected from the voices of those things that were going on around him. So he stepped in. And like Moses, who stepped into this, this confrontational situation and literally killed those who were oppressing his people, he thought he'd take justice into his own hands. And so he let loose, probably in a way that he could have got in trouble of by the school. Why? Because he was operating out of social justice as opposed to maturity and divine righteousness, which would have had him discipline these young people for the sake of their own maturity not out of his own sense of justice based on the situation. And so this is for us. This reality that I'm talking about with Moses is for us. And we need to transition just from social justice to a higher kind of maturity, which is the divine nature of our Father, where we live, breathe, and operate out from a nature that lives within us. And the divine nature, like we've heard about starts and ends with love being formed in us, becoming love. So we're not responsible for fixing, changing, modifying, adapting, transforming the world, but we are responsible for playing our role. And so when I talk about we're not responsible for social justice and protecting, we are responsible for protecting, but not protecting from a self-centered motive or wellspring. We're responsible for creating a culture and an environment in our home where there's healthy discipline for the sake of those who we're raising up and not because we're frustrated, annoyed, can't take it anymore. All right, point number two you're writing notes. Point number two, social justice is about doing works. Divine righteousness is about seeing the completed work of Christ. I'll read it again. Social justice is about doing works, doing good works. Divine righteousness is about seeing the completed 
work of Christ through Revelation. Now, back in Genesis, has anyone heard of the fall before? Yep, once or twice, cool. If, you're, if you've been a Christian for a little while, this is, um, this is kind of back to basic stuff. That Adam and Eve eat the fruit in the garden. There's a number of curses attached to this action that then influence and have an impact on the nature of all of mankind from that moment on. And as part of the curse, it says to Adam that he'll work the ground through toil and by the sweat of his brow. He'll work, he'll toil, he'll labor. But Jesus in the gospel said that he's come to set us free from this kind of strain, this struggle, this toil, and he says that he's come to give us rest. Now, let me say this. You don't need spiritual sight and spiritual revelation to see the impacts of the fall, would you say? They're all around us. They come out of us. They show up in our home. They show up on the news. (coughs) (coughs) You don't need divine sight to see that there are issues in this world or sometimes even that you have an issue. It's clear. It's right in front of your face. But you do need divine revelation to see the reality of who you've been called to be through the gospel You don't need revelation to see yourself in Adam, but you need revelation to see yourself in Christ. See, no one ever woke up in the morning in their natural thinking and thought, man, oh my goodness, I am in Christ, of Christ. I'm a new creation. You don't get that through revelation. But you can wake up in the morning and think, oh my goodness, I'm such a failure. Oh, man, my life is so hard. Right? You don't need revelation to see that. And so this is what the gospel does. It takes you from being an Adam to being in Christ through revelation. As we get older, like I talked about before, our character can become more and more refined. You can become a bit more patient in some ways. You can become a bit more gentle. You can become a bit more sophisticated. That's probably a better word. That the stage that we're at now in our our household is that Levi, when I ask him to put the blocks away, throws an absolute tantrum. Every morning when we we go to brush his teeth, it's like literally wrestling. And I'm not talking about like God wrestling with Jacob for his identity. I'm talking about like... (laughs) agro wrestling. (laughs) And yeah, I don't do that anymore. I can brush my teeth without a fight. (laughs) Imagine like trying to wrestle with this to get her teeth brushed in the morning. We become more refined and we become more sophisticated. And so we think we're okay. And we think that the nature of sin, the earthly natural nature may not live in us anymore because we become a good person. And yet all of these changes are changes that we've made to ourselves to modify, change ourselves. But that does not necessarily mean that you have become transformed in the inner core and the inner man, having transitioned from death to life, going from being in Adam to being in Christ. 
Only the gospel will do that. And it comes not through your own effort, but through revelation. When we see with natural eyes, there's always something to be fixed. There's always something to be changed. There's always something that's broken, even in us. But when we see through revelation, we see the completed work of Christ, and we're able to simply walk in a work that was finished before the foundations of the world. These are two very different works, working your way to salvation and working because you have experienced and you're living from salvation. Two very different kind of works. Let me give you an example, and I shared a little bit of this at Clinton Streams the other week. I feel like it's so, this is such a weird example Maddie Simnor, you'll know, you'll know about this in a second because this is one thing that me and you share in common. But when, so when I was younger, I, um, I was part of the, the Rock youth group here. And um, as an exciting adventure, my youth leader decided to take me out wakeboarding for a, for a day out. I'd never done wakeboarding before, but I was into surfing, I was into skating, I was like, man, wakeboarding is like the next thing that I don't know how to do. And so we were out in the water having a good time, and I assume that people know what wakeboarding is, right? You're in the water on lots of nods, guys. Look, we need to live a little, eh? But (laughs) wakeboarding is when you've got a board strapped to your feet, and you're behind a boat, and there's a rope that goes from the boat to you, and you stand up, and um, I don't know if you want to give us a demo, Kirk. <laughs> Probably not. But um, wakeboarding is when you get towed behind the boat as the boat's going along, and you you know drive in and out if you're good, like Kirk is behind the boat. And so we were out on the water, beautiful sunny day, and we we're having a good time. And um, I had fallen off the board, and the boat swung around with the rope to um, to help me get back on. And as I went to grab for, I grabbed the rope, the rope got caught around my thumb. Um, and now this rope wasn't just a rope, it was a wire. <laughs> Fatal mistake, eh? I think it was probably not the go when you're awake, but I don't think, think you're supposed to use a wire, but this is, like, this is like the cheap way of doing it for guys that don't have the money to invest in the proper equipment. Anyway, the rope got caught around my thumb and the boat took off, and so did my thumb. Maddie, Maddie's had a similar experience. I won't, I won't share her story, but she knows, she knows the feeling. And so this rope got caught around my thumb, and the top of my thumb came off. Never, I <laughs> know, never to be, I told, it, I told you it's a weird example, but just <laughs> stick with me, all right? Just stick with me. So, so the top of my thumb came off, and there literally was a bone sticking out of the top of my thumb. Don't, don't picture it any more than you need to. Anyway, the thumb was gone, probably to the, the most lucky, you know, fish in the, um, in the inlet. And um, so I had to signal the boat to come over, and it got picked up. Um, if anyone doesn't believe me, I can show you the scars afterwards. Um, but the boat came around, and it picked me up, and I was like, look, uh, we need to get to the hospital. So got and got to the hospital. Emergency department um, sent me straight to the plastic surgery department, um, and so um, I had to get out of my get out of my wetsuit and you know get dried up and um, went to the plastic surgery department. I waited 
about three or four days there because the surgeons that operate on, do the plastic surgery and operate on this sort of thing are also the surgeons that deal with life and death situations on a daily basis. So I went in for the surgery on the first day and keep getting bumped back every day. So I'm sitting here with my just thumb just in this tiny little like band-aid ready for some treatment. And finally the day of the surgery came and the surgeon came in on that morning and he pulled out my arms. Um, you know, have anyone worn those, those gowns? You know, <laughs> pretty deluxe. <laughs> um, but anyway, the surgeon came in and he took out a big black permanent marker vivid and he drew all over both of my arms. And he drew these big arrows on the arm with the thumb that was wasted and on the arm of the thumb that was perfectly good. And the arrows pretty much said, operate here. It said, don't operate here. And I looked at him and I'm like, are you for real, man? Like you are a surgeon and you need to write on my arm to say which one needs operating and which one is whole and complete and normal. And, and he said these words, and this has stuck with me ever since. He said, it's not uncommon for surgeons when they go into operating theater to not see or recognize a thumb that needs operating on and operate on the other one, the whole one, accidentally. He said that happens from time to time. And so to safeguard against that, to safeguard against not seeing, remember surgeons are going in for operations. Mine was a pretty obvious one, but some are probably less obvious. Because the surgeon did it there's a chance that he would look at it and not pick up the one that was whole and complete from the one that was broken and destroyed. He needed to make it clear on my arm to show exactly where we're operating and exactly where we're not operating. Now get this. This is where things get for real. This is where the gospel shows its true colors. That in not seeing the completed work of Christ and who we are in him, we could start to try and operate on ourselves and try and fix ourselves, mutilating the flesh, Paul talks about in Galatians. Why? Simply because of lack of sight, because of lack of revelation. Insisting that we need to try and change, transform, modify, alter ourselves because we're broken having not seen the divine righteousness that is imparted to us through revelation and walking in the identity of a new, perfect, complete, and whole life. Now, the one thing that would save these surgeons from working and from trying to perform a work was seeing a work that was already complete and a work that was already finished. Now, the one thing that will save us from trying to work for God and work out our own salvation is actually say, seeing that salvation is a done deal. The completed work of Christ, of Christ was finished 2,000 years ago. When he died on the cross, we died as him. So that now that he's raised from the dead, we too can live in newness of life a brand new life through the revelation of what he has done on the cross and who we are in him. The only thing that will save us from our works and our toil and our trying and our striving 
and seeing that the work has actually already been done. It's perfect and complete. So then the question you ask is, okay, well, what about judgment? Do we, what about transformation? What, what, what about what comes next? If, things are, if we are righteous in Christ, then what does that look like? Well, if you actually, if you read about the judgment, particularly the judgment for Christians, it might baffle you that actually in 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about the judgment seat. And what's being judged is not your behavior, but your works. But your works? It says that on that day, some people will stand before him and the fire will burn through them and what will remain, there'll be some works that remain and there'll be some works that are burnt up. Now the works that remain are the works that have flown through this place that have come because of the completed work of Christ where our identity has been found in him and then we start to live and function as Christians out from a finished work. The work that gets burnt up is the work where we're constantly trying to fix ourselves, change ourselves, bring social justice to ourselves, a work that is always incomplete that will have us striving and trying and never entering into life. Now in these two thumbs, you can imagine two thumbs trying to be at work. What if the divine commandment of God was to, okay, come and pick up a loose cord that's hanging on the on the stage, what does that commandment sound like to someone who is complete, to a thumb that is whole and right? Oh, a piece of cake. Easy, no dramas. My... But if someone was to say, hey, with your mutilated flesh, with your, come and pick this up with your thumb. Are you for real? You're expecting me to do this? You're a you are asking too much of me. Now, this is the gospel, that in not believing who we are in him, who he said we are, that we're righteous in him, we'll hear the commandments of God and we'll think that they're unattainable. We'll think that there's a work that's still outstanding that we'll need to do for him as opposed to simply walking in the new life that he's given. Can you see the difference? One is working to try and fix and change. The other one is working because we've been changed. One bears much fruit, and the other bears much frustration. If you don't see the reality of the gospel, you will constantly be condemned for who you're not, for your sin, for your continual missing the mark, and you'll never be convicted of your righteousness, and who God says that you are in him. Knowing that you're right in God can only come through divine revelation. And it's the one thing that will set us free from ourselves. <coughs> Excuse me, just give me a sec. I'll put here, condemnation is the fruit of unbelief. But repentance is the fruit of belief. Condemnation is the fruit of unbelief. 
that when you read the Gospels, when you read what is for us in the Scriptures, when you read what we would almost call the standard that God calls us to, you will either go one of two ways. You'll be condemned of your inability to meet the standard, or you'll be convicted of God's absolute faithfulness to bring you into the reality of who he said you are in him. One, unbelief. The other, belief. And this is what true repentance is. It's letting go of who you thought you were and coming into a new and fresh comprehension, not brain comprehension, spiritual comprehension of who he is and who you are in him. That changes you. So that when we read verses like in Matthew chapter 5, I might just read this. It says this, if you read through Matthew chapter 5, you'll hear this a lot. You have heard it said. You have heard the ancients said, have said. You have heard that your friends, your colleagues, your co-workers, those around you have said. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You have heard that it was said, social justice, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Justice, right? Justice. But Jesus here is bringing in a better order, a higher standard. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that for you? Even people living by social justice will do that. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But the one who lives by divine righteousness will have a substance on the inside of them where they aren't blown here and there by the things that are going on out here, but by the reality that's going on in here. And the key here is this. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We are sons. Now let's live and walk and act and breathe in our identity as sons, letting our works flow from this new life that's inside of us through new thinking, through new belief, through a new capacity that God gives. And let me just say this, if this is a standard that seems too high, you've come to the right place. Because this really, the gospel really is the answer. That if you, if you hear this and say, I just, I, I don't know how to live like that, then repentance is the answer. What does repentance mean? Allowing, 
when God comes and changes the way that you think. So that when something comes out of you that might not be divine, instead of God saying, God, that is just evidence that I am just so messed up. You say, God, I thank you that you've called me to live and breathe from this new identity in you. And you, your mind gets shaped to who you are and who he says you are, as opposed to who you used to be and the reality that you were born naturally into, as opposed to the brand new life that you can now live in and from because of his blood and his death and resurrection on the cross. Is that cool? So, Father, I pray that as your children, we would believe what it is that you did on the cross 2,000 years ago. Father, seeing your death as our death and seeing your resurrection as our very life. Father, seeing the reality of the gospel and living in it, living from it. Father, letting our works and everything that we do come from this new place of identity in you, working because we are right and not to become right. So, Father, I thank you that you set us free from ourselves. You set us free from needing to change the world. And you make us secure on the inside so that we can truly serve those around us, not because we need anyone's affection or pats on the back, Father, but because you live inside of us and our lives become an expression of the divine nature of our Father within us. So, Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thanks, guys. If anyone wants to chat about anything or has any questions, feel free to to come and have a chat. Um, Other than that, cafe is going. And like I said earlier, come out tonight. Um, We're talking about identity and how identity is foundational um, to flowing and moving in the gifts of the Spirit. Thanks, guys.